I should probably double check that actually. Hold on a second. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, I'm going to be reviewing Don't Breathe, the new film from Fetty Alvarez, as well as Yoga Hosers, the new film from writer-director Kevin Smith. But before we get into that, I wanted to delve into a couple trailers that I saw, actually right before Don't Breathe. First, we have Ouija, or Ouija, however do you say that, the board game, uh, Origin of Evil. And this looks like, it looks like an interesting sort of twist on what the first one was. Um, it looks like the film is trying to basically reinvent itself by serving as a prequel, delving into the the beginnings of how that board game ended up, you know, kind of, I guess, cursed or haunted uh, to begin with. The film is the latest from director Mike Flanagan, who is the guy be- behind the recent Netflix, I believe it was a Netflix, director Netflix uh, film, or it may not have been, but it had very limited uh, release. And that is thriller called Hush that was sort of a sort of a home invasion type of deal just like like Don't Breathe and uh, as well as Oculus which was uh, kind of an underrated uh, horror film that went under the radar a couple years ago but it looks like the film is is really kind of delving into a sort of body horror element of of itself and and, uh, you know I anticipation behind this one is actually much greater than you would think, considering that the first one was sort of critically derided. I think Mike Flanagan has a, has a like sort of a cult following going, and I think this film actually looks pr- uh, pretty uh, intriguing. There's a good chance that it's just a great trailer that's going to disappoint like hell when the actual film hits theaters. But it, it did for someone who you know I had no interest in the in the original film, but this actually you know the fact that it's such a drastic shift from a creative standpoint. And that they are trying to, you know, sort of tackle the franchise from a different angle and legitimize why there's a Ouija movie to begin with. Uh, I think I think it looks like it's taking a much more innovative uh, approach to that. And, you know, it's something that I'm curious about seeing. Might not be at the top of my list for the films coming out in the next few months, but definitely something that now is on my radar for the first time. So moving on to another horror sequel, Rings, which you know, is the third film coming after The Ring 2, which I believe was 2004, 2005. And then right after that, that film, I, I believe, underperformed because that franchise sort of fell apart uh, pretty fast once, um, you know, once that hit theaters. So I think the long wait, you know, I said on the last episode that comedy sequels, you know, really worry me when they have... 10 or 15 year gaps in between look at Zoolander look at Anchorman films like that that really don't need sequels at this point anymore and younger audiences today probably have barely a passing knowledge of them to begin with so I mean the ring is really well regarded the sequel I think has essentially been lost so this film has an interesting way in in going at it and that it's trying to bring the concept of you know, a videotape that kills you in seven days and, and bring that into an era where videotapes no longer exist, where it's a YouTube video and involves water coming out of a webcam instead of a television and really trying to modernize that and make it, make it relevant for, you know, today's teenage young adult viewers. 
Not to mention, like you know, some of the some of the better horror films coming out in the last few years, I feel like you know they really bring it does bring a, an element of body horror to it, where it looks like the main character is sort of gradually becoming taken over by Samara. I mean, she essentially has a uh, kind of a, I guess, word in, I don't know what it's written in, but some kind of language burnt into her hand from the phone when, you know, she answers for the seven days. And and I'm just realizing that was actually a handheld phone and not a cell phone. You would think that they would find a way to make it a cell phone since they're trying to modernize it. And most people don't really have landlines anymore. They're sort of going out of falling out of vogue and the movie is really trying to uh, bring everything up to speed with today's technology it seems a little old hat to to leave uh, the handheld phone in place there but you know I digress Um, has a a word burnt into her hand that means rebirth or symbol that means rebirth and you know there's some really eerie images with her pulling uh, what appears to be a, a braid of Samara's and if, you know, for those of you who haven't seen the originals, Samara's the little girl that, you know, with the long hair that crawls out of the TV. Spoilers, I guess, for the ring. Pulls a, a braid of Samara's hair out of her throat, and this one, like, there's one really, kind of, interesting image where it looks like her hand is sort of melded to Samara's hand, or a hand is melded to Samara's hand. It could be cr- creative editing there, for all I know. But it does look like they're trying to get a jump start and, and sort of cut off the naysayers that might be like do we really need a another sequel to the ring because you know actually i'm i'm one of them i i i enjoyed the first one enough but there was nothing in it where i thought it was you know the best horror film to come along in ages and you know the most memorable scene happens towards the very end of the film so there was nothing in it specifically that stood out to me as this is a giant, like an, an icon of horror that's being created right before our eyes. But it has sort of developed that reputation as one of the best horror films um, in the 2000s. So it'll be interesting to see if Rings can really bring that franchise back up to speed, especially now in an era of James Wan films and Fede Alvarez films, as I'll talk about in a little bit. But... Um, but yeah, so Rings, finally coming out. I know it got pushed back from a spring release. Makes a lot more sense for it to hit theaters right around the time of Halloween, which is, I'm sure is what the studio was thinking. So it'll be interesting to see how this how this Halloween shapes up with all the horror films hitting theaters. I know we're, I think this is, feel like this is going to be the first Halloween in maybe a decade or so that we haven't had a Saw or a Paranormal Activity film hitting theaters since both of them are sort of on at least a hiatus right now. I've heard rumors about the Saw franchise picking back up. Um, but yeah, so it'll be it'll be an interesting an interesting box office contest between the horror films of 2016. Okay, so I just saw Don't Breathe, the new film from director Fede Alvarez. For those of you who are unaware, he's the guy that directed the 2013 remake slash reboot. I guess it sort of depends on who you ask of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead franchise, which of course now is continued on to the Star's television series Ash vs. Evil Dead, but I digress. So Raimi produced that film uh, as well as this one through his Ghost House Pictures production company. So Jane Levy stars as a young woman who's putting together one big heist with her, with her friends, her boyfriend and a friend, who they break into homes 
and rob them. And basically, they're putting together one big score to steal a large sum of money from this blind man who's, you know, a war veteran, who's kind of an agoraphobic, doesn't really leave his house, that kind of thing, so that they can start their life over again. Move to California from Detroit. Jane Levy's character, Rocky, has a shitty home life. Her mom is a complete dick, and her mom's boyfriend's constantly over, so she wants to take her little sister and go to the other side of the country to sort of start over and save her little sister from this toxic environment. Now, from there, things get way more complicated when they break into the man's house. The man, of course, the blind man, played by Stephen Lang of Avatar fame, primarily. He's been in a million other things, and he's probably the most uh, rumored slash fan-casted actor to, to play Cable in the X-Men franchise. So we'll see if, if this movie helps his chances getting, uh, of getting cast to play that character for Deadpool 2, because I know they're going to bring Cable in there. But he, they realize that the man, the blind man that they're robbing from, is not really as easy a mark as they initially anticipated. Of course, they end up basically kind of trapped in the house with the man and trying to evade capture while also finding a way out of the house, preferably with the money that they came to get in the first place. Now, from there, it just really kind of spirals into basically 90 minutes, or a little less, I guess. You have about maybe... 15, 20 minutes of setup up front, uh, just kind of to, to establish the stakes, uh, primarily for Levy's character. And, it, and it's, it's really just an exercise in suspense from there on out. It's very Hitchcockian in the way that Fede Alvarez really kind of sets up his shots. I thought that it really had a lot of, a lot of cool camera moves. The camera really kind of pans around the house. There's tracking shots throughout the house, kind of establishing where things are setting up things that are later going to pay off in the story. Um, just kind of building tension as you see the blind man move throughout the house, um, kind of trying to track them and them trying to evade him. And the movie has a lot of really interesting techniques that it uses in order to establish what, what's going down visually. Um, for example, there's a sequence where he essentially turns the lights out on them that's not, not, not a reference to the, the movie from earlier this summer, Lights Out, which I also liked quite a bit. But uh, turns the lights out on them because as, after all, as a blind man, he doesn't need light. So the movie sort of goes to this kind of grayscale thing because a lot of times when films do things like that, they, they go straight to like night vision style. But because he doesn't need, you know, none of the characters in this scene have night vision goggles on it doesn't serve that purpose of this you know that story in that way that they, they, he does sort of a grayscale thing where you we can see what's happening but like just clearly but like enough to to convey the idea that these actors are completely in the dark i don't know if they filmed it that way or or what's going on if they i mean they may very well may have because i don't know if it's a digital effect or if it's something that was done on set and therefore because it was shot in the dark but the actors all the actors that can see the characters that can see their eyes are their pupils are dilated as if you know they're reacting to the darkness and then having to you know how your eyes adjust with light so i thought that was a really cool detail just the framing throughout the the, the craft that alvarez puts into this film is so impressive like you can tell you're dealing with the next level 
filmmaker. And I know I've read some things online where people are saying um, about, you know, this is a renaissance for horror right now between Lights Out and uh, I know The Shallows did really well and there's a couple other ones this year. Um, sort of led, I would say that's sort of led by James Wan with The Conjuring and the Insidious films. And I, I definitely think Fede Alvarez is, is a, uh, a big component of that. I'd say that between Evil Dead, which, which I liked a lot, and, uh, and Don't Breathe, I think he's really establishing himself as one of the leading horror directors. And I really love the fact that he brings back Jane Levy, who was the main, the main star of Evil Dead, and pulled off a really compelling performance there as you know, both the vulnerable version of her character Mia and the, <laughs> the possessed version that was... So, so she sort of played the hero and the villain of the same story in a, in a really convincing, really chilling way that, you know, every time if I, when I think about that movie, it, it still kind of sticks with me. And that's few, that's, that's, that's really hard for a horror filmmaker to pull off a remake, a reboot, whatever, whatever you want to call that, of a beloved franchise and, and to create a hero that is memorable, maybe not in the same way that Bruce Campbell's Ashes, because, you know, he never... He's never really, he's never 100% serious. He's usually, I mean, the first one maybe, but even that, you know, a lot of people consider that more campy than anything. But he's, he's more of a hamming it up, like um, action hero style, you know, in the way that his larger than life portrayal of, of Ash is just in reacting to stuff. And it's, it's almost more darkly comedic, uh, especially in Army of Darkness. But, you know, in Evil Dead 2, and throughout the franchise whereas Mia was more of a serious like hero serious villain and that movie had a really interesting metaphor as far as you know kind of using the whole thing that Mia's character was going through withdrawals from a drug addiction and whether the supernatural stuff was sort of an extension of that and there was a big question early in the movie of you know if she's hallucinating these things or if she's lying to them to try and get out so she can get drugs because she's like you know she's dealing with the trauma of that and don't breathe doesn't really delve too deeply into that kind of metaphor but there is a lot of uh there are a lot of twists along the way there's a lot of personal stakes uh at play for both jane levy's rocky and stephen lang's i guess he's unnamed because he's credited as the blind man so so I guess that's that. And, uh, and the supporting performances of Dylan Minnette, especially, the, these, these are really characters that you root for in some sense. But then you find yourself wondering, well, who should I root for here? Because at least early on, before things get much more complicated, as you know, I want you guys to see this. So I'm trying to be as spoiler free and vague as possible. But at least early on, when they break into his house and, you know, he's trying to find them and and uh, you know, hunt them down, or even defend himself with with violence if necessary. You know, they're breaking into his house to steal his money. One of them, you, you know, he. I don't want to get into specifics. It's hard to talk about this without getting into specifics. But they're the ones trespassing. They're the ones breaking and entering. They're the ones that are committing a crime. So, to a certain to a certain respect, you sort of think he's in the right again like I said at least early on before it gets more complicated but um, 
so, so it, put, it puts you in this interesting moral quandary where you're not sure who is the lesser of two evils up front with, the base, with that basic premise. And, and I, think, I think that's an interesting place to be in because you know, there's, there's chances in this film where the main characters have an opportunity to turn back. They have an opportunity to leave the money and get out. And they're like, no, I need this money, especially Rocky. She has plans for it, as I, as I explained up front. And like I said, all that stuff with her and her motivation, that's established in the, maybe the first 15 minutes of the movie. So that's not really a spoiler. So it puts you in, the, in, this, in this interesting place as far as from an from a audience standpoint. Um, the I, Levy here is, is just as good as she was in Evil Dead. I think it's a less demanding performance for her, uh, or less demanding role, rather. She's, she more plays the, uh, the, the straight-up final girl type here, and she doesn't have to bring as much darkness to it as she did in Evil Dead. But I, I, I do think that if she keeps teaming up with Alvarez for these kinds of films, I mean, she has the potential to be the next horror icon. I mean, she already has two really strong uh, characters and potential franchises. I don't know if they're going to continue Don't Breathe with sequels, either with her coming back or taking it in another direction, but they certainly can. Um, I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler to say that there's, there are places that this can go uh, with, with or without Jane Levy, Stephen Lang, or whoever. You could do prequels, you could do sequels, you could do spinoffs. This could, you take this basic premise of, you know, sort of a, a interesting spin on the home invasion film, where it's actually you know, uh, double home in double home invasion in a way. It's like they're the ones invading the home, but they're the ones who end up in peril. So it's just, it's, it reminds me, it's like if you think of, uh, you know, classic home invasion films where the people, the people invading the house are actually the ones that end up in trouble. And in that way, I think it's a, an interesting uh, subversion of expectations and kind of taking that genre and putting a new spin on it, putting something fresh into it. And as we know, as we all know, horror is one of the hardest genres to do something fresh and different with. And I feel like this film really manages to do that in an incredible way that is kind of transcendent as far as, you know, it's not just a great horror film, it's a great, it's a, it's a suspense thriller. It brings something new to it. I feel like it's, it's violent enough that, you know, people that are watching horror films for that get what they came for but it's not to the point where it's gratuitous it doesn't ever get close to you know torture porn and that kind of uh, territory and so I have to say I was really impressed by Don't Breathe I I had heard really good things going in but I think I was I possibly even better than I expected it to be so for Don't Breathe from director Freddy Alvarez I think I have to go with 4.5 out of 5 this is almost certainly going to be on my top 10 of the year and if any of you have any interest in the film based on what I've said I would highly encourage you to check it out and from what I heard it did really well this weekend it might have I believe it may have been done number one and from you know after seeing the film I think it's pretty easy to guess that it had a pretty modest budget uh, I haven't had to check on that but it's uh, it's almost certainly going to be a hit so don't breathe. Highly, highly, highly recommended for me. One of the best films of the year. Probably the best horror film this year that I've seen. 
So uh, definitely check it out and, uh, you know, enjoy. Writer-director Kevin Smith returns with Yoga Hosers, the sequel slash spinoff to his 2014 horror film Tusk, which was essentially about a crazy old man wanting to turn a young man into a walrus. And those of you who listen to Smith's podcast or you know follow him across his, his multimedia presence on television and, and obviously with his films on the internet, he's basically everywhere. And I'm a big fan of his. I should throw, probably throw that out right out the gate. I did enjoy, uh, I did enjoy Tusk to a minor extent. Um, I felt like the film had a lot of elements that worked as a straight up, again, this seems to be the, the, the theme of this episode in, in large, uh, large respect. As far as body horror goes and uh, you know, creature design and that kind of thing. So I enjoyed certain elements of it, but I was, I was less, less supportive of uh, Johnny Depp's role as Guy Lapointe, the uh, French-Canadian private detective who is recruited by the characters played by Haley Joel Osment and Genesis Rodriguez to track down the missing podcaster played by Justin Long. Uh, I felt like he didn't really fit the tone of that film and, and, and it had this bizarre shift halfway through when he shows up that I, I never really could 100% get behind. However, I'm really, I'm really impressed and sort of admire Smith's sort of tenacity to not only, you know, <laughs> turn, a, turn an idea that he had on a podcast with his friend, Scott Mosier, friend and producer Scott Mosier, and turn it into a real film. Like, take such a wacky idea and make it a legitimate film that some people went to see, that he toured around the country, and yes, it doesn't work for most for most people. And yes, you know, it doesn't it did it didn't exactly light the box office on fire. But it does it does prove that he he when he really sets his mind to something, he goes for it full stop. So for that respect, uh in in that way, I really respect the film. And I really like a lot of what he did do. I thought Michael Park's performance was really strong. I thought Justin Long's performance was really strong. So going into Yoga Hosers, the previous film had Harley Quinn Smith, Smith's daughter, and Lily Rose Depp, Johnny Depp's daughter, sort of in a cameo appearance as two, two teenage girls obsessed with their phones and working behind the counter of a convenience store in Canada. Of course, that's right in Smith's wheelhouse because of the Clerks films and all. And I think he, you know, he was sort of motivated not only by the fact, you know, wanting to give his daughters a, a starring role in a film, but just sort of uh, creating a film that's about teenage girls and sort of a twisted monster movie that caters to that audience, which we haven't really, not to my knowledge, haven't ever really seen. And it, I believe this is, Smith's first PG-13 film, which is also kind of a big deal, considering that the man loves his F-bombs and, and uh, his sexual humor and, you know, his last couple quote-unquote experimental films, Red State and Tusk, were very big on, on, uh, on violence and blood and, and sort of um, leaned into the gore aspect of it to a large extent. And Yoga Hosers really scales that back. I mean, there's a little bit of that in the third act, 
But for the most part, for the most part, the the girls who are both named Colleen in the film, so they're known as the Colleens. Uh, the Colleens take on these little, uh, these little foot tall sausage Nazis. That is Nazis made out of sausage. All of which are played by Smith himself in prosthetics. And um, and and so because of that, they're filled with sauerkraut and sausage. So they don't when they explode. Nothing, you know, there's no blood, there's no guts, so there's nothing to worry about as far as from the MPAA standpoint. Similarly to the way that Suicide Squad had the Enchantress turn people into these faceless globs that the, you know, the villains slash anti-heroes are able to just run around shooting without having any issue as far as this is too intense for children and all that. Even though that film has a whole bunch of thematic issues that should caution parents to begin with that that part of it they sort of uh they sort of evaded and yoga holders takes a similar approach now the film features a lot of cameos and small roles for not only the returning cast of tusk all of whom all of well the main three genesis rodriguez Haley joel osment and justin long all have some role in the film but also um Smith's Hollywood Babylon podcast co-host Ralph Carmen has a huge part in the third act, especially one that really was clearly written to tailored to his his strengths. And people that that know that podcast um, will be able to probably figure out pretty fast what those are. I'm trying to avoid spoilers for the film, as well as you know Jennifer, Jennifer Schwabach Smith and Van- Vanessa Paradis. And uh, so, so Jason Muse. There's a, there's a bunch of little appearances by Smith alumni, uh, friends and family, that sort of give the film very much a uh, a passion project feel, which it is for Smith. I mean, he really he really uses the, these crazy ideas that he comes up with as an excuse to put something new and different out there. And and whether it's good or bad or works for people or doesn't, it's a vision that he had. It's a film that only he would make. And by recruiting all these people so close to him to sort of fill out the cast, it, it really um, carries that spirit throughout it. That it is just Smith just having fun and making a silly movie with a bunch of friends. And to that regard, I feel like a lot of critics really kind of shit all over the movie because it's not... Because it is so weird and different. And I'll agree it doesn't work... Um, for the most part, there are a lot of parts that don't work. There are a lot of scenes that fall flat for me. But I feel like uh, Smith and Depp, the little versions, the girl versions, the teenage girl versions of Smith and Depp, because obviously they're the elder Smith and Depp, their fathers are also in this film. The girls are, are really strong and sort of, and very natural and have a kind of a, a charisma on screen. They actually do some singing in the film. And I thought that all came across very, uh, very endearing. The fact that they're friends in real life definitely is captured with the characters they play on screen. Um, I feel like Lily Rose Depp in particular has sort of a knack for that like sarcastic, biting, dry humor. Uh, she plays the sort of the, I guess, harsher of the two in that she's a little more in your face. She's a little more... Uh, hard edge as opposed to uh, Harley Quinn Smith's more you know more naive slightly more innocent version of uh, of a teenage girl 
And I think that the two, the two of them, they have that, they strike that right, that perfect balance that makes, um, you know, makes the decision to put them front and center in a film not completely unwarranted. And I, I'm glad that we get to see more of them here. I'm glad that uh, Gila Point, Depp's character, returns here and actually fits with the story this time. In the other one, as I mentioned, he just sort of throws a giant monkey wrench in the really dark and serious and fucked up story that is going on in Tusk. And, I, and to me, he, he, he stuck out like a sore thumb. And a lot of his uh, more affected performance with the ridiculous accent and the prosthetic nose didn't fit with what that movie was going for thematically or as far as its, as far as its really disturbing tone. Uh, it, was more, it felt more in line with Red State to me. And this one feels more in line with something like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Granted, it's, it's actually more absurd. It doesn't have the same kind of stoner vibe to it. But it is about two friends sort of in this crazy adventure dealing with ridiculous stuff and having to try and rely on each other to, to figure things out. And in that, in, that, in that way, it worked for me. Um, the third act goes way overboard and way ridiculous. And, you know, the fact that it's intentional sort of doesn't redeem it, but it, it, it inspires me to go a little lighter on it. The fact that this is a movie that is not trying to be taken seriously. It's trying to be one of those films that you flip around on cable channel, uh, on, on cable networks and find it at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning when you, have, when you had a little bit to drink or, you know, maybe smoke something or in some other state of, of heightened awareness. And, you know, you're just chilling out, enjoying this insane movie where this crazy shit happens and these two teenage girls fight, fight, Nazis made out of sausage that are literally called bratsies. So um, I can wholeheartedly recommend it because the movie is so divisive. I think it might work uh, a shade less for me than Tusk because I, I think there was some real drama and gravitas that that film had, but it does feel more cohesive than Tusk did because in large part because of Depp's character sort of throwing that movie off the rails a little bit. Whereas in this one, I feel like he does play more like the French-Canadian Clouseau that he was intended to be. Of course, you know, Smith has said time and again that his, what he's calling the True North Trilogy, will conclude probably in a couple of years with Moose Jaws, which is exactly what it sounds, a riff on Jaws with a moose. Kind of, I'm assuming, roaming the Canadian wilderness in the same way that Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic had a shark kind of wreaking havoc on a, you know, a small beach town. So I, it's already been um, announced that the Colleen's will return. I'm almost certain that that will mean Gila Point will return. And a lot of these same actors probably come back in different roles. I'm still excited to see that, even though neither of these two films, I think, are out and out winners and are not the, the best that Smith has had to offer. For me, I'd still say the Clerks films and Dogma are probably my personal favorites. Dogma, probably a slight edge over both of the Clerks movies, simply because I like the religious themes and the commentary that that film brings to it. And I really do believe that, you know, Ben Affleck's performance in that, Matt Damon's performance in that, Alan Rickman's performance in that are all really strong. And it's probably the best use of Jay and Silent Bob um, in Smith's films, mostly because they actually serve 
they actually serve the overarching story in an interesting way. Um, so they're, they're, they fit better with the actual narrative, which doesn't center on them. And you know, I, I apologize for the sound quality right now. It's, a, it's been raining out here. So that's not helping. Uh, that's not helping the podcast in any way. But uh, you know, when you're dealing with a tropical storm, a little bit of uh, of noise pollution is, is I guess, the uh, the best you can hope for. So to recap this episode, "Don't Breathe" from uh, from director Fede Alvarez, highly recommended. Definitely check that out. Great film. Almost certainly going to be in my top ten of the year, as I said earlier. Kevin Smith's Yoga Hosers. Is uh, I saw it at the Fathom event a couple of days early, but it's hitting theaters on Friday, September 2nd. So when you hear this, it may already be playing. It's in a limited release, so you might have to hunt it down. If not, I'm sure it will be hitting, you know, DVD probably by the end of the year. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, recommended for Smith devotees particularly, but also people who just want to see some crazy shit and and kind of let loose and just having. Uh, an out of control time at the movies. It has enough comedy that that you know you might you should find plenty to enjoy there. Uh, just don't take it too seriously, and you know maybe have a couple beers before you go for it. That'll be all for this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast. Um, next week, I'm not entirely sure what I'm gonna be talking about. I have been reading Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, like many of you have, I'm sure. So there's a good chance I may try and work that into uh, into an upcoming episode, if not the next one, maybe the one after that. But um, definitely check out CrookedTable.com for more podcasts, videos, reviews, and other movie-related goodies. I'm getting ready to start moving uh, moving on with videos and video reviews and other. Uh, perhaps some Let's Talk About Six segments, um, probably next month, so early October, look for another video on the Crooked Table YouTube channel. Been a little lax in that in that regard, but you can also find me on Twitter, at Crooked Table. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Tumblr, pretty much all the social media sites, Crooked Table is on there. So I look forward to hearing from you and your thoughts on this episode. Give us a review in iTunes. And until next time, this is Rob saying, roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.